Welcome to the Ankler Podcast. This is Sean McNulty from the Wake Up Newsletter here at the Ankler on the evening of uh, Thursday, October 12th. Um, joined as always by Elaine Lowe, uh, Peter Kiefer joining us once again, and uh, of course, Richard Rushfield. Uh, we're all here in uh, Los Angeles for once. Uh, and Richard, uh, apparently I heard you're one of the people that Nelson Peltz is trying to get under the board of the Walt Disney Company. Did I get, did I get that right? You're a very impressive pull, Richard. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, of of Disneyland, and I have a lot of... <laughs> Feelings about the snack selections at the at the oh. at, at the park and everything. It's uh, could could use some more variety. So I think they wanted that represented on the board. Unfortunately, their meetings they tend to do their meetings first thing in the morning, which is Uh-oh. you know I told them if you could start at eleven, I would I would meet you halfway. But but uh, very regimented company apparently. So yes, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna bow out of that. Well, Nelson Peltz has a lot of pull there now, Richard. You know he, he keeps buying out that stock, so you never know. Maybe he can add that to his list of requests for Bob Iger to uh, to work into his day somehow. So well, TBD. I'm- I'm available if they're, if they're willing to think about that. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Elaine, did you recover from uh, your disappointment at Taylor Swift not putting you on her invite list uh, for the big premiere this week? Uh, you know, disappointing, Deeply I'm sure. Deeply offended. <laughs> but uh, I have my tickets to go see her anyway. Because oh, I'm magnanimous you. like that. <laughs> <laughs> You're the bigger person, Elaine. Very nice. Good showing. Good showing. <laughs> Um, and we also uh, we have a featured interview this week that Peter has with the uh, emeritus director at the Annenberg Innovation Lab at USC, Jonathan Taplin, uh, which we're going to get to shortly. But first, uh, Richard, the town this week certainly very heavily affected by the atrocities taking place in Israel right now, which you certainly touched on in your column this week. And I got to think that was a big point of the conversations you were probably having around around town this week, right? Yeah, I really felt talking to people this week that you really had to turn people to, uh, to to look at entertainment news because everybody was so glued to the Mideast and, and, and the horrors of what happened there. But I, I wrote a, a column earlier in this week talking about the the, the horrors that happened. And, and this I just had this sort of sense that we're in this moment in history between what's happening in Ukraine, between the, the, the uh, battles in politics in America, where this this nihilism has emerged as this, this sort of dominant movement across the uh, the spectrum. And I'm not equating MAGA with Hamas or, or what's happening in Ukraine. I'm very different things and very different uh, circumstances, but share in common this sort of sense of like, nothing matters, there, there is no objective truth. And this, this sort of love of kind of cruelty and, and nastiness, uh, you know, Obviously, what happened to Israel, Israel and Ukraine goes beyond just uh, nastiness. But my column pointed out that in these very dark times that that are occurring and may get much worse before before it gets better, there's a real need for someone to stand up for humanity and for humanism. And this is the traditional role of Hollywood, which has traditionally been sort of the the cornerstone of world media, um, and we have to to. You know, do things like make people laugh and show human stories that don't necessarily have any political content, but just make a case for a common humanity and look into other people's lives. And instead, we have let our media be overrun by this this fire hose um, where just nothing builds any strong attachments or emotions. And it's just it, it it is just fueling the nihilism of the world, and I just I, I just said Hollywood needs a the world needs a strong Hollywood to make human stories again and give people 
a sense of common humanity out there. So yeah, stand up for ourselves and get to work, uh, Hollywood, and don't cede the voice of media to uh, to a bunch of uh, videos of people smashing their heads against the wall or whatever. Yeah. No, very thoughtful read, uh, Richard. You can, of course, check that out over at theankler.com. Um, a lot of great thoughts there, Richard, and really nice connecting some some big themes there uh, this week uh, with the town and, and the world at large. Um, you know, a, a quiet week for industry news in some sense, but Elaine, not a quiet week for the guilds. Uh, certainly, speaking of trying to get the town back to work, um, at first, the DGA had to defend their deal uh, for some reason, which was uh, sealed and ratified four months ago, but they had a, a letter coming out this week that you uh, you wrote about over at the Ankler. Right, a curiously timed memo from the Directors Guild to its membership uh, defending itself against quote-unquote misguided news coverage and social media reaction, although frankly I hadn't really seen that much press coverage of it since this was a contract that was ratified back in June, uh, but it comes notably two days after uh, the Writers Guild contract was ratified by, you know, almost unanimously by its membership. Um, and, and the DGA memo essentially said, hey, our contract was also great. And look at all the things we achieved, 76% increase in foreign residuals, uh, a host of other things. Uh, but the re- its reception was was sort of just like why, why now, and and what's it? You know, it, it seemed like it might have been in response to some kind of internal dissatisfaction. Um, so yeah, just uh, just but we had a whole host of reactions that we covered, and 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 essentially, um, you know, they were the only one of the big three unions that didn't go on strike this summer, and some people feel as though they had leverage that they willingly gave up uh, on the strike front, <laughs> right? Um, the news, news is that yeah. talks have been suspended between SAG-AFTRA and the studios as of last night. And this comes after five days and two weeks of those negotiations getting reopened after 90 days of a work stoppage. Uh, you know, we've seen some things in the press today of, you know, whose fault it supposedly was. Uh, you know, the, the SAG says that the studios were the ones who decided to leave. Ted Sarandos at the Bloomberg conference this morning said that it was because of this, um, you know, this revenue share model, which had been this SAG had tweaked. And then, uh, you know, to 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 more of a um, I think it's sort of a viewership based thing or subscriber based. Actually, subscriber based uh, uh, levy, he called it. Uh, yes, at the, yes. At the conference. Yeah. And he said it was a, a bridge too far. So that seems to be where the sticking points were. And from what I was hearing, AI was also another sticking point. So AI and this, uh, you know, success share model. Right. But here's where we are. So now we're at another at another standstill, um, kind of like how where we were with uh, the Writers Guild not too many weeks ago. Yeah, and that was a ended up being a you know a four week uh, period before they got back in the room again. I think uh, the collective thought is we really hope this is another you know <laughs> another four weeks before they get back in the room again, Elaine. Yeah, they, this was a surprise. There were a number of people who said, "Oh, you know, the Writers Guild contract is done. This should only take a week or two, right? Yeah, for right. the actors Co- to paste. get it together." Copy and paste. Yeah, there you <laughs> not go. Not quite. Not quite. No, <laughs> it, it's weird throughout this how much. The actors have always have, have just been portrayed as this sort of afterthought, like sort of the the little buddy strike. Like yeah. they 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 really haven't gotten 
an independent message out the whole time. It was sort of like, yeah, they want Writers Guild stuff and some other things too. So the reporting on it and everything, it's sort of like everyone was very focused on the Writers Guild and what was going on. And you heard all sorts of speculation and updates. But then once they came, everyone was like, I don't know, the actors, I guess, I guess they'll do something quick. Now, now, it's now 160,000 other people right, with a right. huge it was like, host it was like now of the, contingencies. Now the real strike is over, so, you know, the actors will come along with it. Yeah. Peter, any observations over uh, your world today coming with this, these developments? I, I, I mean, I agree with Richard. It feels odd that the narrative surrounding the, the larger Hollywood strike has been sort of gobbled up by the writers. And I don't know if that was a, a function of some of the comments that came out from the SAG president, you know, several months ago. She said some pretty provocative things about uh, Bob Iger. So I don't know if the behind the scenes asked her to sort of maybe tone it down a little bit. And that's, uh, you know, but that's pure speculation. But yeah, I agree. I think it's I think it's odd. And I I was the person who went on the TV and was telling everyone that, yeah, this thing's going to be over in a couple of weeks, too. So I'm a sucker just like everyone else. So it's, <laughs> oh, thanks um, a lot, I, Peter. That's I great. Know. Really productive. Thanks. I a was lot. quite surprised. I was quite surprised. Oh, boy. Uh, yes. Yeah, so Elaine, you know, the, the, the strike lines are still going on now. SAG is still out there, right? They are out there. The negotiating committee was out there in front of Netflix today. Yeah, I think next week will be very, very strongly attended. Um, some more to come there. Keep a good thought, everybody. But uh, Richard, Delaney, and I were at the Bloomberg conference uh, today, the past uh, day, day and a half here. Well, you guys uh, know how to live. <laughs> you would have been very impressed by the food, Richard. There, shout oh, really? out to the, the Bloomberg folks. What, what, what was uh, the lunch? Oh, I'll tell you offline, Richard. Then we're going to keep the, the menu talk to a minimum today. But uh, a special hello to all the Angler podcast listeners who I met, by the way. Uh, great to meet you at the conference, uh, including the one gentleman who heard me talking to somebody else and then recognized me by my voice. So that was a, that was kind of a, a fun <laughs> one. So I guess people listen to this thing. Who knew? Um, but uh, a very, I, I guess, unexpected uh, WME. CAA street fight kind of broke out, Richard. Uh, Ari was the opening speaker and uh, kind of came out swinging at CAA. Uh, it was just a question from uh, the moderator about, you know, his thoughts on the Pinot deal and the $7 billion valuation, essentially. And uh, he got a very spirited response, um, not really talking about that valuation, but more about their this pending uh, Julia Ormond lawsuit regarding a Harvey Weinstein assault. Uh, Richard, are you, are you tracking all this or what's, what's yeah, on your Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. He he went straight for where where you aren't allowed to go. You're not allowed with CA to talk about Harvey Weinstein's stuff in in the media or out loud. That's 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 been like this forbidden topic uh, since uh, since the New York Times, right? Uh, what was it? Seven years ago now. Wrote a wrote uh, was it five years? How long? Five years. I think it's five years ago. Five yeah, years yeah, ago. Yeah, uh, five, yeah. Wrote a piece detailing CA's complicity and and sending actresses up to. Uh, up to see Harvey Weinstein, including multiple uh, sources who said they complained to CAA about it and told CAA what was happening and uh, were ignored. So th- this has been an open secret from anybody who doesn't read the New York Times, I guess. Um, and what's been fantastic in these five years is, uh, as I've been following, I don't think the leadership of CAA once has been called on to answer a question about this. I think they, for that original piece, they were no comment and I, they haven't spoken about it since and nobody who's interviewed them um, has, has, has asked them about it. And, you know, the, the agencies play a very special role for the trades because they are the biggest sources of 
deal news and cast news and all the and and all those things that are the bread and butter of uh of the trade business. So you see very little um poking at the trades. And in this case, um, you know, they were the they were the company most directly when when Harvey went down, they were the company most directly tied to uh tied to his involvement, rightfully or, or wrongfully. But and the fact that they have never been called to account for that in the least um, really opens them up to the kind of assault that uh, that Ari undertook uh, that. Yeah, and he you know came out and said you know they, they, Margo, Margo Robbie and Bermel Street you should be asking questions of the leadership at you know your agency he was calling you know just calling out CAA clients and was really very very spirited about it. Um, and then uh, Elaine Brian Lord uh, took the stage uh, here to end the, end the conference today. Um, coming out, calling, you know, Ari erratic, uh, self-serving was another word he used, uh, kind of talking about, you know, the clients he has left was another quote he had out there. Um, it's, it's a great thing. You just, you, you never see, uh, any people at the top of Hollywood calling it was each something. Other their yeah. names and taking each other on in public. So, I mean, that's, it's wonderful. And, uh, and, yeah, you know, and, may they keep it going. And yeah, Brian, you know, is also, uh, you know, saying, look at the people that Ari's partnering with, namely Vince McMahon, who's had some, uh, you know, uh, misconduct uh, issues of his own, then uh, the WWE merger. So uh, if you, you know, think people pointing fingers at at Ari a bit, Elaine, is that kind of, you know, so Brian, and then essentially with the lawsuits just said, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll settle this in court. Elaine was kind of his overall just on the, the matter at, at, that Ari was calling out, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think uh, I mean I don't know about you, but I, I think the crowd was sort of surprised at the uh, at the candor on stage today. Uh, on both, I mean, you're, Richard, you're right. I mean, Ari certainly because it wasn't even a question he was asked. Uh, so clearly, he was intent on bringing this up. And then Brian was already scheduled, of course, and had to mention this. Uh, so you know, Peter, you re- recently wrote a lot about CAA. Uh, what, what's your take? I mean, I wrote. Here? I wrote. I spent. Like months uh, researching the bad blood between uh, Ari right. and Brian. Oh, right, you had the Ari and Brian. Yes, mm. a few months back so, before that, you had the so big piece. I, yeah. I mean, I have. I'll, I'll, I'll try and limit my observations about this one. But uh, number one, Ari can't help himself. Uh, he really has a deep loathing for CAA, and I think he has a personal animus towards Brian, and he has for a long time. Uh, I don't know what it was. It was about a couple months ago. He was invited on the Freakonomics podcast yep. just to talk about deal making. And uh, and I know for a fact that the um, host was not anticipating anything other than a, a long and detailed chat about all the deals that that uh, Ari has made, and yet he teed up a, a a question about CAA, and Ari took the bait and just blasted um, Brian Lord and, and and Kevin Huvain, not about this topic but uh, others. So he is he's very willing to mix it up with those guys publicly. Second point is. Uh, Ari, uh, this is very, very comfortable ground for Ari to attack uh, Brian and CAA over, despite the, the concerns regarding some of his partners in WWE and the UFC. As I reported in my story about Ari versus Brian, uh, back when all of the Me Too stuff was was at its peak, Harvey Weinstein reached, uh, reached out to, to Ari to try and set up a meeting with one of his clients. And Ari rejected the plea. He told basically told him to, you know, to take off. I'm not helping you out on this one. And that was shared with me. There was actually a news that hadn't been broken before. And so I think he does feel that when it comes to Harvey Weinstein, he has an amount of moral high ground over Brian and CAA. And obviously that was on display at this conference. And, and my final note is um, 
obviously, Brian Lord must be extreme fuming that he was called out publicly. He is a a, a very sort of Southern, he, he projects the notion of being a very, a very Southern courtly gentleman. He doesn't raise his temper. He doesn't, he doesn't get mad. He's, he is not a, an outwardly um, emotional person. He's about control. And so for him ultimately to come out on a stage in front of all these people and say the things he's did is extremely out of character uh, for Brian Lord. And I think speaks to the fact that he was just absolutely furious. And as, as Richard knows, and, and, and Elaine does as well, CAA does not like to comment publicly on anything. Uh, so to have him go out there in this public of a setting is a total breach in, in CAA's usual communication strategy, which really speaks to the, the fact that he just could not let this one lie. So uh, totally fascinating and just ups the ante in this ongoing rivalry between these two sort of titans. Yeah, and he was asked directly about the comments. You know, he wasn't coming out, you know, for the general endeavor question. It was more, what do you have to say in response on the stage? So in Elaine, he certainly, I think he alluded to like, you know, I don't want to get out on too far on this, you know, himself when he was addressing the 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 question, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm I very interesting to hear our in-house agency expert, Peter, weigh in on this because <laughs> I was curious all day about what you'd make of this, Peter. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I uh, again, I think I, I'm, I'm more shocked that Brian, in a way, came out as forcefully as he did publicly. It's just, again, it's just not something that he typically does. So I don't know. I would not want to go toe to toe with Ari Emanuel in the sandbox like this. It's he's a tough he's a tough guy and he's very comfortable in this sort of a, a, a melee, you might say. So it'll be interesting to see if it cools down or if it or if they sort of keep trading barbs. Yeah, especially this challenging time in the business when a lot else is going on here. So we'll see how the what signals they take. But again, you can re- read that great piece from Peter over at theankler.com. Just search for Ari versus Brian and a really great read from Peter over there at The Ankler. Um, we're going to take a quick break. And we'll be right back with Peter and his interview with Jonathan Tapley. All right, so Peter, you uh, had an interview this week with uh, someone in the industry who's uh, done quite a bit. Uh, how do we how do we introduce uh, Jonathan Taplin? Well, he's in a very interesting character. He's been around uh, for decades. He's started out as as Bob Dylan's producer uh, back in the '60s. He was a producer on Mean Streets. Uh, he's worked with you know obviously Scorsese. He's worked with with Vim Vendors, and he's got several patents on a video on demand from back in the nineties. So he was a uh, very ahead of the times in many ways on technology. And he's now an emeritus director at USC's innovation lab at the, at the Annenberg. Uh, but he's also an author. Um, and he just came out with his uh, second book, which uh, piqued my curiosity. The title of the book is the end of reality. Uh, How four billionaires are selling a fantasy future of the metaverse, Mars and crypto. And effectively it is a, a screed of sorts uh, against four titans, the four, you know, most, arguably the two most, four most famous titans of Silicon Valley, Elon Musk, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Andreessen, the venture capitalist, and Peter Thiel. And so I was very interested in some of the stories, that the, the, the reviews of the book. I read the book and I thought he had some really interesting thoughts and considering his past working in the entertainment industry and being a sort of large thinker about the the transition uh, from video on demand to streaming. I I just thought he'd be an excellent guest to bring on the show. 
Yeah. And a little bit more about the, the guild negotiations as well. Right, Peter? Exactly. Yes. No. So he's been he's been studying all the elements of the entertainment industry. Now he's more of an academic, uh, but he was sort of in the trenches for for a while before he moved over to USC. All right. Well, uh, without further ado, here is Peter's interview with Jonathan Taplin. Um, I wanted to start with the book. Now, this is not your first book, but it is a fascinating one and one that is, uh, I think, myself and many people have been thinking about. Correct me if I'm wrong. It does strike me as a, a bit of an indictment of, of these four individuals who are considered the titans of Silicon Valley. Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and Mark Andreessen, who is arguably one of the most powerful venture capitalists in the world. And, and, and you argue in the book that uh, you make several arguments, but I think the, the, the general crux, central crux is that through the establishment of various monopolies, these four individuals have, have wreaked havoc on our economy, specifically on the middle class, uh, through a variety uh, of nefarious ways. I, I want to start by, why don't you, could you just tell us a little bit about the origins uh, of this book? And, and when did your suspicions uh, about Silicon Valley uh, and these four individuals start? Well, it really started quite a while ago. I wrote a book called Move Fast and Break Things, which was uh, essentially saying that Facebook and Google were wrecking the creative economy. And that was before Donald Trump and everything. It was one of the first kind of pushbacks against big tech. But this book specifically came to me in the sense that these four men essentially controlled social media, right? I mean... Uh, Andreessen and Thiel were the earliest investors in Facebook, uh, obviously, along with Zuckerberg. And of course, Elon Musk controls X or Twitter or whatever you want to call it. And, and you know, you could argue pretty strongly, as Jonathan Haidt of NYU does, that once Facebook put the like button on in 2011, teenage social harm, suicide, all sorts of bad effects began to happen. And it, and you look at the charts and they just go like a skyrocket up. But beyond that, needless to say, the effect that they had on our democracy in both the 2016 election and the 2020 election were horrible. And the third thing is, of course, is these people have created much more income and inequality. I mean, these people have controlled trillions of dollars of personal wealth. And the income inequality has continued to get worse and worse and worse. But now they're offering us a new future. And, you know, it seems to me that the two existential crises of the next 20 years will be obviously climate change, but the second one will be automation. And in terms of climate change, uh, none of them, despite Elon Musk's claims, are doing much about this. Musk, you know, makes $100,000 cars for people who want a virtue signal that they care about the environment, but it has not had any real effect. And moreover, Musk would like to abandon our planet and go to Mars and that will only cost us $10 trillion of the taxpayers' money just for the first mission for 50 people. But worse off is the automation thing. Sam Altman, who is the CEO of OpenAI, said last week that he expected the marginal cost of intelligence 
to fall near zero within the next 10 years. And that that earning power of many, many workers would be drastically reduced in that scenario. It would result in the transfer of wealth from labor to the owners of capital so dramatic that it could only be remedied by a massive countervailing distribution, which he calls universal basic income. Now, I don't believe that the current Congress is capable or willing to create some kind of universal basic income. It's hard enough just to maintain the existing welfare state. So unless we have a total crisis of 25, 30% of the population unemployed, nothing's going to happen. And Congress makes all sorts of motions that they want to regulate big AI And by the way, AI will be controlled by only four firms. I I want to circle back to AI with you because I I think there's there's an opportunity later in our discussion to get into that when when we talk about its impact specifically uh, on the entertainment industry. But I want to just stay pulled back a little bit here on on the book and its general themes and ideas. Okay. I'm wondering, are are your concerns that you express in the book, are they specific to these four individuals? Or, or is it more about the culture and, and the philosophies that have come out of Silicon Valley as a region and as its own sort of sub-economy? Well, it's both in the sense that the libertarian philosophy, which was kind of the core central idea of Silicon Valley, has morphed into a much more authoritarian philosophy. In other words, Peter Thiel supported two very important candidates for senator last year. Uh, one was J.D. Vance and one was Blake Masters. And these people weren't libertarians. They were authoritarians. They, they were both totally against abortion. So what kind of liberty do women have? They're totally against any control of guns. And so the idea that somehow liberty is the key value is no longer of any interest to them. Peter Thiel has said that for him democracy and capitalism are not compatible. He told the Wall Street Journal that only 2% of the people have any idea of what's going on. That is the venture capitalists and the scientists and everybody else is like a sheep. So it's that kind of idea expounded by people like Marcus Moldbug and some of the other people that these people follow is that We don't really need a president. We need a king. And so politically, it takes all sorts of strange directions, such as their complete support of of Donald Trump. And culturally, it takes other things. You know, if you think about our culture, I believe that our culture has become much, much more nihilistic. Uh, You know, I was lucky enough to be involved with Bob Dylan when I was young. And the culture was a culture of optimism. Uh, The times they are are changing. There was a general feeling uh, that the culture could influence politics. And, you know, Peter Drucker, the famous business analyst, once said, culture eats strategy for breakfast every morning. And I actually think that culture eats politics for breakfast any morning. I saw that in 1963 when Bob Dylan was involved with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee 
trying to register voters in Mississippi. And it wasn't until late 1965 before the government started to do anything about that. So the problem I have is we have right now a culture of dystopia and nihilism. Look at science fiction. It's all dystopian. It's no longer 2001, some kind of sense of hope and maybe even spirituality. Uh, it's, it's a very dark Blade Runner type of view of what the future is. Uh, look at TV. From The Sopranos to Mad Men to Breaking Bad to Succession, it's all stories about horrible people in power struggles with other horrible people. And, and we follow it like we're watching a car wreck. And until the culture becomes a little more optimistic, we're stuck in this situation where, you know, Sopranos came out in 2000. By 2016, having watched these antiheroes for so long on TV, is it any surprise that someone says, well, maybe Tony Soprano should be president. And then we got Donald Trump. But wouldn't you, but couldn't you make the case that power struggles have made for interesting narratives uh, dating back far longer than the Sopranos? I mean, I, you could go, go to the 80s and you have Dynasty. Uh, you have soap operas have long been a part of popular culture for a very long time. Um, I, I, I think the, in the notion of an anti-hero, yes, we did go through that sort of a, a burst of what do they call it? Not peak television, but when it was, you know, the, 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 when you listed those shows that we're talking about, there was a, a, a quite a few of them out there. But it feels like we've moved away from that. Aren't these the ebbs and flows of popular culture that we're experiencing? And could your uh, criticisms of culture today, could it, with all due respect, uh, be a function of your vintage will use and sense that, because I'm feeling similarly about certain elements of culture, but I also try and check myself because I'm not as in tune uh, now in my, in my 40s as I would have been in my 20s. Well, look, this is not a, hey, kids, get off my lawn rap. What I'm trying to say is I think culture serves a function of moving society forward in positive directions. And I actually see a good part of that coming from sports figures today. In other words, when Coco Goff said, hey, those protesters who were up in the stands cementing their shoes to the, the floor that stopped her tennis match, that they were okay, that they had the right to do that, I thought that was pretty cool. When LeBron James comes out and gives $20 million to try and register people to vote, I thought that was pretty cool. I'm just saying that I don't think that the popular culture of entertainment writ large, meaning TV, music, movies, is contributing towards that. It's contributing towards a kind of let's escape. And that is what Peter Thiel and Mark Andreessen and Mark Zuckerberg and, and Elon Musk are selling. They're selling escape. So what is the metaverse? The metaverse, which, you know, Zuckerberg is trying to get you to wear a virtual reality helmet for eight hours a day. That's his business plan. He told it to Ben Thompson. Well, you know, you can pretend that you may like Tony Stark, but now you can pretend you are Tony Stark. 
and Facebook will rent you Gwyneth Paltrow's avatar to date for a night, and you can fly her off to Paris in your virtual reality. Now, it could be, as you know, Andreessen had said something I thought was pretty telling. He said, reality has had 5,000 years to get good, and it clearly is woefully lacking for most people. We should build and we are building online worlds like the metaverse that make life and work and love wonderful for everyone, no matter what level of reality deprivation they find themselves in. So I assume that the people that Angus Deaton at Princeton is writing about in his book called Deaths of Despair, of people who's left alone in Appalachia because the work moved out and on oxycodone and playing video games eight hours a day, I assume they're fairly reality deprived. I'm not sure that the solution is to escape into virtual reality. Same thing with Musk. Do we want to abandon the Earth and go to Mars where there's no oxygen? There's no, you stand outside for five minutes and you get skin cancer. I mean, it's a cold wank. And, and you know, Andreessen thinks we can fight wars without any casualties. He is the main maker of autonomous weapon software. Um, and Peter Thiel, forget about him. I mean, he he believes we can live to the age of 200. Another fantasy. Right, right, right. I, but again, I think that, and I hear you on a lot of this, but I think that this notion of escapism, what they're selling, I mean, the entertainment industry was built on the idea that you're selling escapism. That's not a particularly new product. That may be because I came out of a an age of making films in the early 70s, the, you know, the late 60s, all of us inspired by Francis Coppola and Godfather. And, I, you know, I made Mean Streets with Marty Scorsese. You know, if you think about Badlands, you think about Five Easy Pieces, you think of, there was a period of extraordinary filmmaking from, say, 1969 to 1978 that was full of realism, whether it was Bob Altman or Billy Friedkin or Peter Bogdanovich or Bob Rafelson, all these extraordinary filmmakers that was the equivalent of the French New Wave. And it was not about fantasy. It was about real lives lived. And as Marty Scorsese says, you know, Marvel movies are like theme park rides. They're not, they're not cinema. They got nothing to do with people having psychological interactions as characters. They're cartoons. And, and if that's the height of the culture, then, you know, I think I have a right to say it sucks. You know, I, I came from a period when The Godfather was not only the most popular movie, it was the most acclaimed movie. In other words, it won all the Oscars. That hasn't happened since then. So, I mean, the culture has split. And to my mind, that's not healthy. Right. 
Right. What do you, I mean, returning to these four individuals, do you see any shared characteristics among them? What, if anything, binds them as that's part of their DNA or what makes them these certain types of individuals? What, 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 what do they have in common? Well, they all own pieces of each other's company. So that's the first thing to have in common. The second thing is, and this is kind of delicate to say, but they're all on the spectrum. I mean, Elon has admitted to being on the spectrum, but if you spend any time with any of them or just watch videos of them, they all have the same kind of, and they all had horrible childhoods. Uh, and Musk was thrown down two flights of stairs in South Africa when he was very young by a bunch of his schoolmates. Peter Thiel was continually mocked for being effeminate, and, and it was only when he found chess that he was able to find a couple of friends in high school. Mark Andreessen had one of the worst childs of all, still hates his parents, uh, you know, just thinks it was the most horrible upbringing he could imagine. And Zuckerberg is, I mean, you saw, I think, David Fincher's portrait of Zuckerberg is pretty right on. You know, he was a manipulative little dork. They all carry a chip on their shoulder, is, is your point. Totally, totally. And, and also, they were all brought up on science fiction. They all found that science fiction books, most of which had a world in which nobody had to work and you made your games as playing video games or other stuff like that, some kind of idealized world in which universal basic income really existed. And it, it doesn't seem unreal to me that they are all the greatest supporters of universal basic income, which is crazy. I mean, look, it could be that Zuckerberg really does believe that 40% of the population will be out of work in 10 years. And then the metaverse might be the perfect escape for those people who have nothing to do. But for me, I'm an Epicurean. I actually believe, like Epicurus, that work provides a critical part of who you are as a person and helps define you and give you a sense of autonomy. So this idea that we'll, oh, well, we'll just let the robots and the AIs do everything is dangerous. And, and, and maybe I'm, I'm at a conference of musicians uh, in Brooklyn, and I said last night, it may be that the artists are the last people standing who actually have work because it's very clear the accountants and the lawyers and and, and most of the other people can have their work done better by AI in the next 10 years. But if the artists hold out the way the Screenwriters Guild did two weeks ago, and hopefully the way the Actors Guild will, and those fights were about AI, if they hold out, then we could be okay. Yeah. Now, no, it's an interesting idea. It's one I've been thinking about and discussing with friends is that um, uh, you know, an unforeseen consequence uh, and a welcome one, in my estimation, is that um, AI could usher in, you know, a new era of humanism uh, um, and artistry, 
which we can only hope. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about what do you think about, you clearly have these concerns surrounding um, the products and ideas and philosophies that have been introduced by these four individuals. But uh, we, we are seeing an unbelievable level of dysfunction in Washington, D.C. It, it's profoundly depressing to follow politics in the United States right now. And I'm wondering, do you have any faith that there any form of regulation could step in and help stop some of these nefarious trends uh, that you bring up in your book? What is the solutions to the problems uh, that you highlight uh, in this book? Well, first off, the four people I write about in my book love the situation as it exists. They like gridlock because A, they won't get taxed any higher. They won't get regulated. Nothing will happen. And their existence continues. So they're, they're fine with it as it is. In terms of regulation, I actually think the Biden administration is the first administration that's taken antitrust seriously for a long time. Certainly, neither Clinton nor Obama took antitrust seriously. So the fact that, that Lena Khan has actually got Google in court with the possibility of breaking Google up is perhaps a good sign. The fact that Facebook is in her sights and that they might be forced to sell Instagram and WhatsApp it seems to me to be a good sign. But when Elon Musk goes to Washington and says two weeks ago, we really need regulation. I don't believe it for a second. He doesn't really want regulation. He just wants to say he's not on the side of not regulation. And I can willing to bet you that if we talk again in a year, nothing will have happened. And I've seen this about social media moderation. I mean, look what is happening on Twitter X right now with the Israeli war. There is more disinformation. It is flooded with anti-Semitic disinformation. And by the way, Elon Musk is one of the people pointing towards sites like war monitors and scent defenders that are totally anti-Semitic sites that have a very slanted idea, anti-Zionist notion about what's going on in Israel. So when Musk says the ADL is trying to destroy his business, it's like trying to shoot the messenger. So he takes over Twitter. He lets all the anti-Semites like Kanye West and all the other neo-Nazis who had been banned from the platform back on the platform. Then the thing gets flooded with anti-Semitic content. And then he is shocked when the ADL has the temerity to point this out to advertisers and say, maybe you shouldn't be advertising on X because this is what's happening. And so he wants to shoot the messenger. Uh, these people are very irresponsible. And uh, I'm kind of fed up with them, you know, quite frankly. Clearly. And uh, I think in many ways, understandably, um, I want to shift gears here Um you are a, um, a professor, uh, you're an emeritus director at USC's Annenberg Innovation Lab. So you, th you think about large ideas that impact the entertainment industry. You've worked uh, with some of the most 
you know, influential filmmakers in the past. You've mentioned a few in our conversation so far. I, I want to get you on a few more topics. Um, one, how do you think um, the strike in the entertainment industry um, went for the creative community? Were you happy uh, so far? Obviously, the Screen Actors Guild is still negotiating, but the Writers Guild finally found a resolution um, last week. Uh, what was your take on the way that whole strike unfolded? And do you feel like the creative community, at least the writers so far, uh, should be as celebratory as they are? I was very happy with the outcome of the writer's strike because basically it said that the companies were not allowed to put a screenplay into a large learning model to then create other screenplays. I mean, essentially, think about what Marvel really wanted to do. They wanted to put every screenplay they had into a, a chatbot, essentially. Uh, then the role of a screenwriter would no longer be that. It would be the role of a prompt writer who would write three or four paragraphs. Okay, Captain America meets the Hulk in Iceland. And then in the second act, uh, Black Widow comes in and saves them. You know, just that's what the four paragraphs would be all the person would do. Give that to the LLM, and in a couple of hours, you've got a first draft screenplay. So this is a process that usually takes six, nine months, and maybe $750,000 if it's a really good writer. Uh, and so Mark Andreessen says, this is wonderful. This will bring efficiency to the entertainment business. Well, the entertainment business never really lived on efficiency. You can go down to the Bob Dylan Museum in Tulsa and see 10 separate drafts of Like a Rolling Stone. It took a long time to write that song. It was an efficient process. So from the writer's point of view, I think it was a good thing. From the actor's point of view, what the studios want is to be able to take some poor, out-of-work person who's an extra and scan their body and for a single payment of $750, own their body in perpetuity so that they can virtually place that body with its own clothing and with a different hat and different hair or whatever in the background of any scene. And so they will bank, say, 50,000 virtual extras. They will never have to hire an extra again. And of course, as you know from the Hollywood legend, which is actually true, the only way anyone makes it into the movies is to be an extra and be given one single line by a director to speak. And once you have one line in a movie, you can get a Screen Actors Guild card. So, I mean, I think the idea of eliminating that much employment is sad, and I don't think it's, it's useful. And so that's really what the actors' fight is all about right now. And so, look, this question of whether... AI could be creative or not is an open question. I mean, the problem for me is that AI assumes everything in the known universe is already out there on the internet. And so the idea, its job is to basically remix what has already been said. 
So therefore, the idea that you would come up with something completely original, a Hamlet, a like a Rolling Stone or something like that, is pretty near impossible. And I don't know if you've asked ChatGPT to write a T.S. Eliot poem or something like that, but it's pretty lame. Now, that isn't to say it won't get better, but I don't think it will be original. And original stuff is what pushes us forward as a society. Right, right. You Now, I read on your bio that you hold two patents uh, for video-on-demand technologies, which I think, yeah. which I must have occurred way, way back when. Uh, so you are familiar and you have closely followed and participated in the evolution uh, of uh, the way content is being distributed and has been distributed. What, do you, what is your take on the streaming era that we're in right now? I, you, I guess adja- very adjacently might have played a small role in ushering in some of these new technologies that ultimately led to this point. What, what are your general feelings on where we are as far as, it seems like you're pretty depressed about some of the cultural components of this, but from a consumer standpoint, is there anything to be happy about right now? Well, look, I mean, my company Entertainer in 1996 was the first streaming video on demand company and actually was pretty successful until the studios stopped giving us content and I had to sue them all and antitrust court. And that's how I ended up at at Annenberg at USC because I couldn't go back to being a producer because I was suing them all. Eventually, I won the antitrust suit and then I could afford to be a professor. My take on the streaming era is that it's great in the sense of the sense of choice and the sense that I can go find stuff from BritBox or wherever else and, and get all sorts of stuff. But I also think as a business, it's in peril. There's too much. There are too many providers. There's too much content. And obviously nobody is, not even Disney, is making a profit on it. So at some point, there's going to be a radical consolidation. And just who's going to be left standing is probably an open question. But I would assume that that Netflix and, and Disney and probably companies like Apple and Amazon Prime will still be around because for Apple and Amazon, it's a subsidiary business. It's not their main business. So they can afford to keep it afloat. But I wouldn't be making a long-term bet on Paramount Plus or a bunch of these other streamers that are, you know, Peacock or stuff like that. I, I just don't think the market can support that. And then 10, it tends to group into groups of three. As you well know, when I was young, there were three television networks and then there were three pay TV services. You know, there was HBO and Showtime and and Cinemax, you know. So I think there's going to be some pain. There's definitely going to be less content made. And we'll see. It'll shake itself out. But that being said, the idea that you can watch what you want to watch when you want to watch it is is a, a boon to everybody. My final question for you, Jonathan. What sector of the populace would you hope reads your latest book, which is the most important demographic that you think needs to get the message that you're delivering in this book? Well, I would hope that both the tech leaders and the political leaders um, 
take the message seriously. I think we're in an existential place where if the big AI companies are allowed to just take anybody's work, such as any photograph or any piece of music or any Stephen King novel and ingest it into their models without payment, it essentially destroys the artistic economy. And that needs to get stopped. They need to pay for this work that they're using to train these models. And and they're using this notion of fair use. But it's such a perversion of the notion of fair use that it's just not right. So that's my hope. Got it. Well, Jonathan, thank you for coming on the Anchor Podcast. We really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck uh, with the book's rollout. It's a super interesting idea and I think ultimately an important one. Thank you, Peter. Okay, let's round out the week with uh, Richard. Richard, now is your moment to talk about Taylor Swift. I know you've been holding it back. We really appreciate it so far, but uh, now the floor the floor is yours. It's uh, Taylor Swift Day starting tonight in the previews here. Is she still? Do they still make her sit on the uh, bleachers there with with while the cheer captain is uh, going out with her? Her what is it? Her brother or something? What the? I was that. You're the cheer captain, and I'm have to sit on the bleachers. The, um, I will say, I, you think of how she's this this absolute apex she's at, and she's been at the very top of uh, fame for, for all these years, relatively in the public eye, and and managed, but she's still out there and talks and everything. With that, if you looked at when she burst through, and her peers at the time, whoever they were, I'll bet every single one of them, their career stumbled when they said something terrible or something came out or pictures were revealed. It's like like the squid games that she's gone all these years without a single major misstep to derail her. That's kind of incredible uh, these days. And I I salute her for it. And and I I don't think they should make her sit on the bleachers. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's not the case anymore, Richard. But uh, (laughs) yeah, she's on track for an over $100 million uh, weekend in the U.S. alone this weekend uh, and keeping... I think that cuts uh, 57% of the box off of the gate or something along those lines. So if that's about $57 million in Taylor's pocket, in, uh, the, the the Taylor Swift family pocket, Elaine, this weekend, including some of yours. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, what, how many how many times have I gone to the theater this year? I think this is like my third time. It was like, it was like book club <laughs> two. And then I don't even know what the other thing was I saw. And then Taylor Swift, that's it. That's my movie list for the whole year. I mean, <laughs> I mean that that's, that's, I think, the same as everybody. <laughs> well, at, at two hours and 45 minutes, you're getting your money's worth. So uh, I will say, you know, I, a lot of conversation this week about, you know, okay, what, what do we take from this, et cetera, et cetera. I had a kind invitation from uh, some USC students to come speak uh, this week on campus, and they were asking me about uh, what I thought about it and what this meant for music documentaries. It's something that's this is out there right now. Beyonce has another one of these coming out in December. And, you know, will we see this raft of uh, music documentaries coming out of Lane and this, be new, this new tactic going, you know, cutting out the studios and going direct with the theater chains? And, you know, I, I asked them, I said, well, who else would you go pay 20, 
$2 to go see a concert movie for. And there wasn't a lot of answers. I mean, maybe Harry Styles could pull this off. Um, but even Beyonce, after, you know, the news of the first, her first day of pre-sales came and they were, you know, six, seven million, I think it was, but we have not heard any update on the sales there. The outcry uh, the for a victim-owned concert film isn't, uh, uh, the students aren't uh, demanding that. Oddly, that that did not come up, Richard. Oh. I did not ask them. In their, I did not oh. ask them that question fairly. I didn't know if Vic was still on the on the concert circuit. Uh, maybe that's a VHS tape uh, thing, Richard. I don't be on the on the big screen. But really, I don't know that this is going to be something uh, that really we see a lot more of going forward for a lot of acts. Uh, potentially. Well, you know what I read that I thought was interesting, and is that they're trying to make this sort of an experiential thing, right? Like uh, I read somewhere like you're allowed mm. to use your cell phone. You should bring in the friendship bracelets, oh, yeah. like as if you were going to an actual Taylor Swift concert. I love that idea because. You oh, are describing great. my nightmare. Like I, I actually for a concert, a yeah, I love <laughs> it. I mean, yeah. it's like I wasn't able to pay hundreds or or thousands of dollars to go see Taylor Swift, so there was no way I was going to be able to actually see her in concert. But the idea of sort of having this pseudo experience, uh, yeah, for twenty two right. bucks, that's a steal. I want to come into that theater and complain to the management about everybody <laughs> in there and oh, get boy. them all thrown out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> central central casting over here on that one, I think. Yeah, Richard is a grumpy old man coming in. I don't know if I don't know. If Peter, I don't know if you buy that, Peter. I don't know. We'll see if he can sell it. But uh, I, I assume you're not going this weekend. You know, I have a, I live in a household of a bunch of Swifties, so I wouldn't rule oh. anything out. Okay, all right. You may be uh, kidnapped, or you may be you may be uh, drawn into going here. Anyway, uh, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Remember to follow uh, The Ankler on the socials at The Ankler and subscribe to The Ankler at TheAnkler.com uh, to get the full suite of newsletters and podcasts there, including my The Wake Up, Richard's Columns. Peter, again, go check out that great Ari and Brian story. Still a lot of fascinating insight in there, uh, as well as Peter's other CAA story from last week uh, about the other rumblings going on there as part of the Pinot deal. Um, and of course, Elaine Strike Guy still uh, going pretty strong here. We're doing a, a three times a week, Elaine, I believe, at this point. Is that where we're at? Yep, we're, we're at three times a week. But uh, yeah, like we've all been saying, not at SAG, the SAG strike is ongoing. It is not an afterthought, guys. Yeah, and that's certainly pending any news that warrants any other updates. Elaine, of course, will keep you up to speed there. And you can subscribe totally free at StrikeGeist. That's uh, strikegeist.com, right, Elaine? Yes, that, that would be it. Rhymes with Zeitgeist. Ze- there you go. Uh, again, 100% free. And Elaine will be back out, I'm sure, on the pickets, uh, checking out the SAG uh, activity next week. Yep. And if anybody wants to reach out and tell me how they're feeling, tell me what they're thinking, I'm at Elaine at TheAnkler.com. All right. Uh, Richard, I'll let you get back to Thursday Night Football. I know you have some money riding on Denver for some reason. I'm not sure what you were thinking there, <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll let you get back to see how the how the guys are doing. Uh, thanks to Elaine, Peter, and Richard. As always, a pleasure to see you, and thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. 